February is here, and this is Ozarks at Large for Tuesday, February 1st. 2022. I'm Kyle Kellums. You're listening to KUAF, your home for NPR programs like Morning Edition for more than 36 years. This hour on our show, the Green Book was a guide for African-American travelers during Jim Crow seeking safe accommodations and services, including in places like Fayetteville. The Green Book uh, was basically a travel guide for black motorists for uh, 1936 to 67. Ozarks at Large's Jacqueline Froelich brings us that story. And just ahead, how the NEH and the University of Arkansas are partners in a summer project to help teachers across the country. The Arkansas Department of Health reports nearly 8,700 new cases of COVID-19 since the last report, which was delivered on Friday. Active cases since then have dropped by 11,600, and hospitalizations, while still high, are five fewer than were included in the Friday report. The ADH reports 12 additional deaths from the virus since that Friday report. There are 163 patients with COVID-19 in hospitals in Washington and Benton counties. That's 20 fewer patients than the pandemic high that was set just last month. The two counties combined for 1,681 new cases diagnosed in yesterday's report. The National Weather Service is issuing a winter storm watch for the area from late tonight until late Thursday night. Precipitation will begin as rain today, then across the region shift into a mix of freezing rain, sleet, and snow. Up to three-tenths of an inch of ice accumulation could fall across parts of the region. Up to seven inches of snow could be on the ground in parts of northwest Arkansas and southeast Oklahoma. The National Weather Service is warning that power outages and near-impossible travel could accompany the storm where ice accumulation is highest. Lows Thursday night could fall to about 12, then into the single digits by Friday night. Early voting is underway today for the special election for State Senate District 7. Republican Colby Fulfer and Democrat Lisa Parks are seeking the seat last held by Republican Lance Eads. He resigned to work full-time in the private sector. Early voting takes place at the county clerk's office in the Washington County Courthouse from 8 until 4.30. Early voting also underway for the Fayetteville City Council Ward 2 special election. The city of Bella Vista is extending its closure of city facilities to non-emergency traffic by one more week. The closure, a response to the increase in COVID-19 cases this winter, will now last through the 7th of February, Monday. The original closing was scheduled to expire yesterday. A new program aims to boost health outcomes for workers in the traditionally underserved Delta region of Arkansas. The program by Little Rock-based Winrock International is funded by a roughly $1 million grant from the U.S. Department of Agriculture. Michelle Perez, Senior Program Officer for U.S. Programs at Winrock International, says part of the program involves on-site visits to work sites by healthcare professionals. Let's say somebody has a high blood pressure reading that day. So we would be providing education to that person about you know, managing health, blood pressure um, and uh, whether that is by nutrition or management with a healthcare provider. Um, and the reason that we're gonna provide education is that a lot of the people that we, we will encounter will potentially either not have um, a lot of trust in the healthcare system or access to healthcare. Perez says the program is designed to include follow-up care that ensures workers have access to quality health care well after the two-year program ends. And so we would connect them with a community health worker who is not a work uh, health care professional, is somebody a peer of their community uh, to help them navigate uh ways in which they can meet some of their needs, whether that is, you know, finding access to health food programs within their region or connecting them with healthcare professionals uh, or healthcare providers if they need follow up. The program is part of the Supporting Health Advances for Rural Employees or SHARE program run by the USDA and will serve up to 4,000 employees in the Arkansas Delta counties of Phillips, Mississippi, St. Francis and Chico. Theater Squared is being honored with a 2021 International Architecture Award in the category of Museums and Cultural Buildings. The T2 home is being recognized as an example of excellence in architecture and urbanism from a global point of view. The building was designed by Marvel Architects with lead consultant and theater designer Charcoal Blue. And the project is part of the ongoing Walton Family Foundation Design Excellence Program. The Arkansas Razorback women's basketball team is now 4-4 four four in the SEC after the team dropped its game against number 4 Tennessee last night in Knoxville, 86-83 in overtime. The loss snapped a three-game winning streak. Razorbacks next at Texas A&M Thursday night. And the Razorback softball season begins in nine days, and that team is picked to finish third in the SEC in a new poll of SEC coaches. 
Perennial national power Alabama is picked to win the conference, receiving seven of 13 first-place votes. Florida was picked to finish second with three first-place votes. And Arkansas, picked to finish third, received two first-place votes. is Ozarks at Large. As we keep an eye on the approaching winter weather, let's talk summer. Later this year, the University of Arkansas Humanities Center will have two NEH-sponsored teaching institutes for K-12 educators from across the country. One will focus on pandemics in history, literature, and today. It will be led by Trish Starks, a professor of history and director of the University's Humanities Center, and Casey Kaiser, assistant professor of English and head of the Medical Humanities Program at the U of A. The other will offer insight into the local, national, and international legacies of Nelson Hackett, a man who was enslaved in Fayetteville, fled to freedom, was arrested in Canada, and forced back to Fayetteville as an enslaved man. That summer teaching institute will be led by Michael Pierce, Associate Professor of History and Director of the Nelson Hackett Project, and Karee Banton, Associate Professor of History, Director of the U of A's Department of African and African American Studies, and host of the podcast Undisciplined. Last week, all four joined us for a conversation on Zoom. Michael Pierce says the events surrounding the life of Nelson Hackett can lead to any number of classroom discussions. He made his way to Canada, and um, the, the guy who owned him tracked him down and extradited him back to Fayetteville on charges of theft. Uh, he stole a horse, a, a saddle, a hat, um, a, a watch on his way to town. And Nelson Hackett in 1842 becomes the only enslaved person the Canada sends back into bondage in the United, to the United States. And abolitionists rallied around the cause um, and, and secured guarantees from the British Empire that no such um, enslaved people would be returned after that. And, and so what we want to do, um, Professor Banton and I, um, we want to use this case of Nelson Hackett to explore several things. One, um, what slavery and fugitivity meant in American history. Um, That so often the the, the history of the Civil War is told from the perspective of the West. And the things that the, the teachers teach and students learn about the, the, the sectional crisis in the Civil War are about issues in the West, and, and whether it is the Missouri Compromise, whether it is the Treaty of Guadalupe Hidalgo, the Compromise of 1850, the Kansas-Nebraska Act, Dred Scott, they're all about issues of slavery in the West, popular sovereignty. And, and, and what Nelson Hackett allows people to understand is the way that enslaved people put the way that enslaved people fueled the sectional crisis by moving their bodies by escaping to the north and and as um you know historians have recently um asserted that issues of fugitivity are one of the two prime drivers of this sectional crisis. And that, you know, the Fugitive Slave Act of 1850 fights over fugitivity um, in places like Ohio and Wisconsin and Illinois were among the prime drivers of of the, the sectional crisis. And so what we want to do is to get historians and people who are teaching history to rethink the causes of the U.S. Civil War, but also to rethink the agency of enslaved people and how this one dude, Nelson Hackett, who, who, who labored um, on the Fayetteville Square, how he put into motion events 
that ensured that that Canada remained a haven for fugitive slaves and how in his wake, thousands and thousands of enslaved people went to Canada, the promised land seeking freedom and how this drove north and south apart and led to a civil war And that civil war was the opportunity for emancipation and abolition. And so it's a way to rethink um, both the agency of enslaved people, but also the process by which abolition and emancipation occur. Cree Banton, when you're talking to educators, does it help to have, I mean, this is, Nelson Hackett was a real person, a real event. Does this help? Uh, absolutely, Kyle. Uh, I think one thing about historians, uh, you know, we deal with data and we deal, the data we deal with is data with soul. And that is what people are able to connect with, right? And that is what facilitates the learning. The telling of a story that can flesh out how we understand broader movements uh, such as abolition or the Civil War or emancipation or how they come to think about African-Americans as a group of people, you know, um, through using the story of, uh, of people like Nelson Hackett certainly helped to facilitate with that. And so Nelson Hackett is just one example uh, in the in the Institute, we'll, we'll use uh, numerous other stories to show uh, our teachers that he is just one of many examples of African-Americans who took their lives into their own hands and got to freedom in this way and therefore disrupted the system or put it in um, a, a system of such, dis- a place of such discomfort that it forced other things to happen. And so the narratives that they may have, right, of Lincoln freeing the slaves, they will get to question that, right? How did he come to that decision were it not for people who were voting with their feet? And how do we understand that? Um, What kind of methodology can we use to understand that if we don't have the written records of people like African-Americans? You know, we have to understand, as Dr. Pierce said, we have to understand their movement. We have to become smarter and use more critical thinking to evaluate um, their movement as documents of what they were thinking and what they were doing. And that is not what historians have uh, been used to doing. And, and that is why we've privileged certain stories over other stories. And so we're moving away from that and we're disrupting that. And so stories like Nelson Hackett that can embed this in the mind of uh, students and teachers alike will help us to break from that old uh, way of doing things. One of the things I think is most innovative, I looked at a lot of these programs, and one of the things I think is most interesting about the Hackett Project um, Summer Teaching Institute is that they are um, going to be putting forward, they're, they're privileging resources that are freely available on the internet. And so this is a way to allow teachers to bring this very cutting edge research in history into their classrooms and without having to expend dollars on new textbooks or new materials. This allows students to have contact with primary research on free websites like uh, the Network to Freedom but um, all of these different free web resources. And I think that's going to really allow the teachers to bring these lessons right into their classrooms right now. We've been talking about stories and histories and narratives. And Casey and Trish, what you're going to be working on is very much rooted in that in contemporary times, oral histories as, as we go through uh, the pandemic and literature. How will, how, what will you be doing with your program? We will be looking at the global history of the 1918 flu pandemic, and we will also be looking at literary accounts of the cultural and personal impact of that pandemic. And we'll be looking at primary source materials from frontline workers and 
others that experienced that pandemic, and then ultimately be comparing all of that with historical, literary, and archival sources related to the COVID-19 pandemic. Uh, what I love about our the um, pandemic is that, it, it, that this one is so interdisciplinary, that it is bringing together literature and history, art history and oral history. We're going to be working with some STEM folk out of UAMS, uh, University of Arkansas for Medical Sciences, that we're going to bring together all of these different people with different skill sets so that we can show the, the broad array of medical humanities approaches to both the past and the here and the now. And so how we can use the past to understand our present, but also use the past to help us immortalize our present. How do we, how do oral historians approach the now using the past as a way to kind of, what kind of stuff do we want to remember? What kind of stuff will be valuable in the future? What kind of stuff has a touchstone in the past? And so by going through these histories and literary treatments and artistic treatments even, we're going to help um, kind of build lessons that teachers can do with students that help them make sense of their experience now, but also immortalize it and save it into local archives, into um, local collections, so that we'll have a movement forward. What I find so interesting about this is the four of you will be working with teachers who will then be working with students. Odds are, when you go down that uh, sort of educational tree, some of those students will be in jobs, whether it's education or policymaking, uh, that will be influenced by what they've learned. Have any of you thought about this? I mean, some of the influence or responsibility you have could, I suppose, if everything works out right, resonate ripple out for a couple of generations? I think we're we're lucky that on each of our projects, we've got current K through 12 educators and experts in K through 12 pedagogy. With Hackett, we've got Charlene Johnson and Sinitra Morris. And with the Pandemics Project, we've got Susan Kendrick Perry, Bill McComas, and Cody Nichols. These are people that are already connecting with teachers in the classroom and I think are going to help us to make an impact with our research to, to truly fulfill the University of Arkansas's land grant mission, to take our research and help spread it into the community, but also make us more understanding of community needs. And so I think it's a great learning opportunity for both sides, that these are supposed to be workshops rather than places where somebody's just gonna sit down and drill information into them. We're going to have communication, we're gonna have dialogues, and I'm so excited for that opportunity that I think that's just gonna be one of the most fruitful parts of this. You know, this is what um, we do all the time. This is what we do as university professors. Um, for, for each of us, um, I'm speaking for Casey, although I don't really know you, um, correct me if I'm wrong, but this is how we approach the classroom and the university, um, that, that our research and our teaching have to be connected um, in order for it to filter down um, somehow into a broader society. And, and so, you know, I, I, I think the, the four of us, um, we're not people in it, stuck in an ivory tower. As Trish said, this is part of what it means to teach at a land-grant research institution. Michael Pierce, Kareem Patton, Casey Kaiser, and Trish Starks joined us by Zoom last week to discuss the Summer Teaching Institutes for Teachers K-12 that will be offered this summer. Deadline to apply is March 1st. Interested teachers can apply at fulbright.uark.edu slash programs slash humanities dash programs. We also have a direct link at ozarksatlarge.com. Crystal Bridges Museum of American Art in Bentonville offers the perfect destination to experience art, architecture, and 120 acres of Ozark nature. Visitors can explore the galleries, walk the trails, or participate in art-making programs. More information at crystalbridges.org. The keynote speech for the University of Arkansas Fort Smith's Observation of Black History Month is a week from tonight. Dr. Georgia Hale, Provost and Vice Chancellor of Academic Affairs at UAFS, will deliver the address. It's titled, 
My Life and Arkansans' Journey to Success. That will be delivered February 8th at 6 p.m. on Zoom. Other events in the month-long celebration include a talk from Sherry Tolliver, a Fort Smith historian titled My Hometown, A Tale of Two Cities. I'm Peter O'Dowd. The new novel, Joan is Okay, is about an Asian-American doctor who struggles to prove to her family that she is indeed okay. I think Joan is incredibly content with what she has, Mm. but to maybe other people, if you're 36 and you're unmarried and you don't date, something must be personally wrong with you. That's next time on Here and Now. Here and Now, this afternoon at 1 on KUAF. You can hear all of KUAF's programs for free, when you use the KUAF app. This is Ozarks at Large. Last week delivered the latest bit of judicial intrigue on the national stage when Supreme Court Justice Breyer announced he would retire from the bench at the end of this term. President Joe Biden will have his first opportunity to nominate a justice for the high court. This is the jumping off point for this week's conversation between Roby Brock with our partner Talk Business and Politics and John Brummett a political columnist with the Arkansas Democrat Gazette. They also ponder a weekend statement from Arkansas Governor Asa Hutchinson regarding former President Trump. First, though, John Brummett considers the U.S. Supreme Court. Well, after uh, the Democrats' repeated uh, exercises in ineptitude on the uh, spending spree that they couldn't pass uh, and on the Voting Rights Act of particular interest and concern to uh, uh, black voters, I think uh, Breyer's uh, retirement is a bit of a godsend for Biden and the Democrats because they can tend to both of those things. They can they have an opportunity to make an efficient nomination. They have an opportunity, if Manchin and Cinema stay home, as I think they will on this matter, to do it themselves if they must. They have an opportunity to pick up a few moderate votes, uh, moderate Republican votes uh, like Collins, Murkowski, those uh, maybe even... Uh, Uh, Lindsey Graham, and famously, this is an opportunity to uh, uh, please, to be of uh, direct service to uh, the black voting constituency to which Biden owes his nomination and his presidency and which he uh, uh, is seen as having let down on the voting rights uh, failure uh, right here in the midterms. Uh, So I think think politically it's... uh, it's it's opportune. Uh, the Republicans, about all they've got is that he should not have, Biden should not have, while campaigning, uh, practiced affirmative action or identity politics by saying he would nominate a black woman. Uh, Joe merely said what uh, Ronald Reagan said before uh, about nominating a, a woman, that he would do that. And he said, and he merely said what is seldom said, but usually done, which is that the president tends to his political interest, rewards his base, and considers diversification of the court, as Obama did in Sotomayor and Kagan. Uh, so uh, this is a, this is this is a golden opportunity for the Democrats. I'm having a hard time seeing how they mess it up, uh, but I, I, I leave that option open. Did you ask me who I, uh, about the nom- Kintanji? Brown Jackson, a, a district appeals a appeals court judge in D.C., uh, uh, a black woman who just got confirmed for promotion from a district judgeship to the D.C. Court of Appeals by 53 votes with three Republicans uh, less than a year ago. Uh, I, she's my odds-on favorite to be the nominee, and it's the kind of person they ought to. The Democrats ought to be able to put through uh, about as expeditiously uh, as the Republicans put through. Uh, Amy Barrett within hours of her benefactor getting beat in the general election in 2020. The Democrats may hold that confirmation process till a little bit later in the uh, in the year, just to be closer to election time. I would point out. I would also point out. President Trump also said that he would nominate a woman when he uh, nominated uh, Amy Barrett to the Supreme Court. Uh, well, yeah, but I did not. What, you, you got some, I know you have basis for that, but, but rather than just go ahead and get it done, you think the Democrats will, will plan it to strategically in terms of timing, do it I, later I in the year? Could. I think they could. I don't know if they move as quickly as the Republicans did on the um, on merit nomination. So. I'm, for, I'm for striking while the iron is hot. Things that linger tend to get messed up, but we'll, we'll see. I'm sure, I'm, I'm sure they'll do either the right or wrong thing.
tactically. All right, Arkansas Governor Asa Hutchinson telling a reporter at the National Governors Association meeting this weekend, quote, I do not believe Trump is the one to lead our party and our country again as president, end quote. Does this set Asa Hutchinson up to be the anti-Trump candidate in 2024? Well, that's a powerful statement I'm not prepared to make, but it certainly enhances this sort of mildly passive, mildly active uh, uh, thing Ace is doing to sort of be out there in the national conversation as a post-Trump, anti-Trump uh, uh, person, should the party turn to turn to that, or or should should the, that uh, that lane have uh, suddenly get more currency? I think he's done an excellent job. Pretty pretty smart guy seems to me. He's he's done an excellent job of just sort of being there, and it's uh, and it's fortuitous for him that he is this year, the midterm year, chairman of the National Governors Association, which was the context in which this was made. I tell you, this thing this thing flashed across this computer screen Saturday Saturday evening when I was just uh, sitting here uh, uh, surfing. Uh, Republican governor says Trump cannot lead party. Uh, something like that. And I thought, ooh, there's a there's a brave Republican governor. I wonder who that is. It turned out only to be Ace Hutchinson. And uh, and I say that somewhat facetiously because I texted him in D.C. and I said, haven't you said this long before? And he said, yes, I didn't realize this was news. It was, he'd wandered off from making a talk or for some conference at the NGA and got uh, and got uh, ran into this uh, business insider reporter who asked him this question. And he basically he had said a year ago, I'm not going to vote for Trump. This time he's saying, not only am I not going to vote for Trump, y'all shouldn't either. Uh, and, and, and yeah, I mean, I think he's he's more in the conversation now uh, because he said so in a national context with a national forum. Uh, a national imprimatur. Uh, so, so good for Asa. And, and I'm getting all these liberals saying, uh, "Why well, praise him for any braveness uh, uh, on, on, on this? Uh, he's just running for president." <laughs> uh, maybe so, but what's he running for president as? He's running for president as a, a Republican who would move away from uh, the menace. I think. Of Donald Trump. So uh, what's uh, uh, what's wrong with that? Just this morning, the latest bulletin across the screen is that in 24 red states, there are candidates for the state secretary of state who deny that Biden won the election, who are running to head the election uh, systems in states, and who and who are still saying uh, all the 96 courts were wrong, and uh, and and Donald Trump was uh, denied his rightful place in re-election. That is not overstated. That's an existential threat to our democracy. If 24, state, uh, 24 states should elect people who would deny election outcomes. So this is serious business. And I'm, I'm hard pressed to say anything other than uh, uh, good for you, Governor Hutchinson, to take this position in, uh, in the national uh, arena. He is fully credentialed as a cultural conservative, fully credentialed and conservative on economic theory, he gets centrist, moderate, on issues of respecting the law and pragmatism. Republicans need somebody like that, somebody like that who doesn't alienate himself or herself, as apparently, as sadly, Liz Cheney has. So I'm just sitting back watching uh, uh, Asa uh, sort of finesse his way through this minefield. So far, so good, looks to me like. Hey, look, if this newspaper gig doesn't work out for you, you could be a press secretary for the Hutchinson for President campaign. I don't think that would work out. I don't think that would work out. I don't think I, I don't think I could go out and, and, and support his positions. Uh, but uh, I can tell you the truth here on our weekly visit. John Brummett is a political columnist for the Arkansas Democrat Gazette, and his columns can be found at ArkansasOnline.com. He spoke with Roby Brock from our partner, Talk Business and Politics. There is more from this week's conversation, including questions the Legislative Council asked UAMS and Department of Health officials about vaccine mandates. You can hear that discussion by going to TalkBusiness.net.
this is, Ozarks at Large. The Negro Motorist Green Book was a series of discreet published softcover travel guides for African Americans seeking secure accommodations and services across the United States during a time of strictly enforced race segregation. As Ozarks at Large's Jacqueline Froelich reports, local historian Dave Edmark researched numerous green books and other records to learn where African Americans stayed in Northwest Arkansas during Jim Crow. The Negro Motorist Green Book guided hundreds of thousands of African Americans who were traveling short and long distances across the United States seeking black-friendly hotels, guest houses, restaurants, nightclubs, service stations, taverns, beauty salons, barbershops, and even summer resorts. The annually published guidebook especially helped blacks to safely navigate across the American South. Starting in the 1930s, Dave Edmark, an adjunct journalism instructor at the University of Arkansas and retired communications director in the U.A. System of Agriculture, documented where African Americans stayed in Fayetteville during that era. The Green Book uh, was basically a travel guide for black motorists for uh, 1936 to 67. And uh, someone could look into it as you look for a particular state and then look for the cities within that state. And for any given city, it would list different restaurants and hotels where where black travelers would be welcome. And they were usually in the black communities within these uh, towns. The Green Book was conceptualized by Harlem, New York resident Victor Green. Victor Green, sometime in the mid-1930s, took a, a short vacation trip with his family around the metropolitan New York area. And he found that as a black family, they didn't know exactly for sure in a strange city, where can they go without being turned away? Or worse, Green Book readers were instructed to purchase a map to plan and mark safe routes, sourcing the guide, which could be mail-ordered, and Mark's article was published in the Washington County Historical Society's journal, The Flashback, edited by Patsy Watkins, to coincide with the wide release of the Academy Award-winning film, The Green Book. Based on a true story, Mahershala Ali plays Don Shirley, a black classical and jazz pianist touring segregated America in 1962, driven by a white chauffeur who had to source the green guy to accommodate his passenger. The, the way we approached this article for the, for the flashback was, what if Don Shirley in 1962 had decided to come visit Fayetteville? Uh, where would he have been able to stay? Speaking from his home writing studio, Ed Mark says he searched the 1962 Green Book first and then all the editions available in the New York Public Library digital collections. Ed Mark found listings for several Arkansas cities as well as for Fayetteville, which had a significant historic African-American community tracing back to enslavement. The city of Rogers, along with Siloam Springs at the time, were sundown towns where blacks were forbidden to stay after dark. Bentonville had a small historic black district, but no Green Book accommodations. At least in many of the larger cities, there were uh, black-owned hotels. But in Fayetteville, all the places that were listed were private residences. It was more like rooming houses, uh, boarding houses, people's homes who were just uh, open themselves up to uh, visitors coming through. In the heart of Fayetteville's historic Black District in 1936, Edmark found one hotel on Willow Avenue, operated by Reverend James Webb, pastor of St. James Baptist Church, which also listed a restaurant. Two tourist homes were also listed, one on Olive Street, operated by Susie Manuel. Edmark publishes two photographs of her in the article, Another tourist home was on Center Street, run by Naomi Smith. And they'd also serve meals there. They'd have um, not what you call a full-fledged restaurant, but maybe more like cafes and snack bars and things like that. University of Arkansas African-American students also sourced the Green Book, Ed Mark says, in the late 1940s when the college was integrated, but blacks barred from campus accommodations. Ed Mark, a longtime journalist, also fact-checked the Green Book listings for Fayetteville. One thing about the Green Book is 
uh, it was not necessarily always accurately updated. Uh, we found out that there were some addresses listed there in the Green Book, which on a city address map really don't exist. The number might be wrong. And on one of them, they even got somebody's name wrong. So uh, in order to verify as much as we could, I just went into the Fayetteville Public Library to check the old city directories, the R.L. Polk and Company directory, those big, thick, bound volumes that would tell uh, not only who lived somewhere, but what their occupation was and uh, just uh, little facts like that. And also check the Southwestern Bell telephone directories for each year and just try to match up uh, these names and addresses. And for the most part, they matched up. But, you know, I found out that's where I found out there were a few discrepancies. Edmark searched old obituaries and contacted African-American natives in Fayetteville to learn what they knew. I started asking around about this because even though the people who operated those homes have long since deceased, but there are the younger generation in the black community in Fayetteville who uh, who knew these people. And they lived around there, on um, basically around East Center Street and Olive Avenue, east of the w- old Washington County Courthouse. A major source is Jessie Bryant, born 1926. She grew up in segregated Fayetteville. As a teenager, she was bused to Fort Smith's Black District to attend high school. The former Washington County Quorum Court judge and founder of the Northwest Arkansas Free Health Center told Edmark that blacks declined traveling through Fayetteville, a predominantly white community, but did travel to Fayetteville for jobs. There would say be construction projects in the area. And so maybe some uh, black workers from Little Rock or other parts of Arkansas uh, would come up here for uh, temporary uh, week-long labor jobs. And maybe they'd go back home to uh, their hometown over the weekend. Edmark says Jesse Bryant describes Fayetteville's black community then and now as knit. Uh, everybody knew everybody. They all knew what each other were, uh, what they were doing, where they were going, uh, kind of how to help look after each other. Bryant told Edmark that the larger white community in Fayetteville paid black residents little mind. Like Lewi, the community managed to persist compared to thousands of black neighborhoods and districts across the U.S., especially in the South, subjected to violent racial cleansing. In 2019, Edmark was awarded the Arkansas Historical Association Best Community Award for his Arkansas Green Book article. As for the Green Book, it stopped publishing with passage of the Civil Rights Act of 1964, outlawing discrimination in public accommodations. For Ozarks at Large, I'm Jacqueline Froelich. While the Omicron variant of COVID-19 continues to disrupt classrooms across the state, officials with the Arkansas Educators Association have released a survey that addresses concerns from the state's teachers. Carol Fleming, the organization's president, says teachers feel their input is being ignored when it comes to decisions about COVID-19 protocols. The voice of the educators have to be included when these decisions are being made. There is state law that we have personnel policy committees in place. And all decisions have to include the voice of the educators and all stakeholders when they're determining what is best for meeting the needs and providing instruction for our students within our school districts. According to the survey, which the AEA sent out in early January, 48 percent of educators want to shift to virtual learning to limit disruptions and maintain safety. As of now, schools are only allotted 10 days of alternative methods of instruction per semester. Fleming says the survey also reported significant learning loss and distress among students. There were three areas that, um, that we noticed that 94% reported that students had suffered some level of emotional distress during or due to the pandemic. 88% reported an increase in discipline problems due to the pandemic, as well as 72% reported some level of undernourishment um, within their students. And the other is that educators feel that they're not being heard and their voice is not being considered when decisions are being, uh, being made. She says school districts also need to be more transparent in disclosing how they are allocating funding from the American Rescue Plan Act. But how the districts 
are dispersing the money and using the money have to include the voice of educators, whether that is in extending COVID leave, increasing the use and providing PPE, and also for updating and repairing HVAC systems. Results from the AEA survey can be found at aeaonline.org. Ohio has grown increasingly Republican. This year, the state has an open Senate seat, and Democratic Congressman Tim Ryan is hoping to reverse that shift to the right. We have to get to these communities. I mean, these communities feel left behind. I mean, if I heard it once, I've heard it a thousand times since April. They say, thank you for coming here. That story this afternoon on All Things Considered from NPR News. All Things Considered, today from 3 to 6 on KUAF 91.3. You can listen to KUAF by asking your smart speaker to please play KUAF. Tomorrow on our show, before you see actors in a play, you probably see the plays set first. We'll meet a pair of set designers on tomorrow's show at noon and 7. If you miss an episode, you can always ask your smart speaker to please play Ozarks at Large to hear the most recent edition of our daily show. Ozarks at Large is underwritten, in part, by the Walton Family Charitable Support Foundation. Sona, the Symphony of Northwest Arkansas, continues its main stage season Saturday, February 26th at Walton Arts Center. Featuring guest artist Sandeep Das, performing Deniku Jarakna's Tabla Concerto, presented alongside Grajina Batsevich's Overture for Orchestra and Schumann's Second Symphony. Tickets available at 443-5600 or sonamusic.org. This is Ozarks at Large. I'm happy to say for the first time in 2022, I am with the militant grammarian, Catherine Charles. Welcome back. Thank you. I'm happy to be here. Holidays went well? Oh, yeah. Yeah. I, you know, we went to Vegas, so. <laughs> that's, that's, it's warm. That's holidays for us. <laughs> Kyle, have you accepted the 10-year challenge that's popular on Facebook these days? I have not. <laughs> that you know, does something that doesn't surprise me. <laughs> I have not. Well, it's, you want to say what it is? You, oh, sure. You put up a picture of you from 10 years ago compared to the picture of you now. Yeah, yeah. And I, I found that 10 years ago, I didn't take many selfies, so I had to do 11 years. But Well, I think that <laughs> it should be the 10-year plus challenge, I suppose. Exactly. Well, I know it's not called Facebook anymore, but I'm unlikely to change what I call it. Exactly. <laughs> so that got me thinking about words that came into being 10 years ago. Oh, I like where this is going. Mm-hmm. So we're going to do uh, a 10-year challenge for words. And, of course, that would be back to... 2012. It should be 2002, but whatever. What? <laughs> 2002 feels like 10 years ago. Oh, okay. <laughs> I started to say, did I miss a decade no. there? No. <laughs> okay. Here are some words whose first use Merriam-Webster Dictionary traces to 2012. It'll be interesting to me to see if there are some that have evaporated, more or less. Mm-hmm. Well, you're, I'm going to ask you what they mean. Okay. <laughs> Do you know what dead name, one word, dead name means? No. I must have been sleeping in 2012. I, I don't <laughs> recognize that. So think about what the literal meaning of it might be. So a dead name, well, it's like a name that's not used anymore, like Adolf. No one names their child Adolf well, that, anymore? Well, that, that would be a great, uh, a great use of it. But now think about trends. Okay. Uh, uh, well, sexuality trends. Okay. No go. Okay. Um, it, it's the name that a transgender person was given at birth. Oh, okay. I, okay, uh-huh. right. And no longer uses after transition. Here's a possibly unpopular opinion. I have always thought that human beings at some point in their age should be able to choose their own name. A lot of them do. Yeah. I like that because that's something that's given to you when yeah. you have no say over right. it. And, 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 and sometimes, I mean, I got lucky. Julia, Catherine are both names that are still sure. popular. But think if you were named – oh, I better not you yeah. choose any. But think if you were named a name that was very popular back then. Prudence, let's right. say, you know, or, something like that. Or you were named O.J. Yeah, uh, yeah or Adolf. Right. Yeah. And you'd say, exactly. I'd rather not be that right now. <laughs> exactly. Okay, dead name. I, I did name. not know that yeah. one. 
Um, and I wasn't necessarily aware that transgender identity was so prevalent in popular culture 10 years ago, but evidently it was. All right, so um, many trans people will go to great lengths to prevent people from finding out their dead names, destroying photos and documents, trying to ensure that who they really are is the only identity most people will remember. Okay, I'm, I'm right. for that, yeah. Here's one I'm sure you know, escape room. I have done this. You have? It's, oh, yes. It's, so that was 10 years ago. Yeah, you go in. It's like a three-dimensional puzzle, and you've mm-hmm. got a certain amount of time, and there are clues that you have to figure out mm-hmm. inside this space. And in within a time, yes. right? Mm-hmm. Yes, yes. Mm-hmm. And then if you don't get out, do you stay forever? <laughs> no, no, no. You, just, you don't get to put your name on the chalkboard they outside. They ought to charge you more if you don't get out or something like that. <laughs> you don't need more stress in those places. <laughs> so it is a game in which yeah. participants are confined to a room or other enclosed setting, and are giving a set amount of time to find a way to escape by discovering hidden clues and solving a series of riddles or puzzles. It's okay. fun. Uh, I think my only knowledge of it was an episode of Shit's Creek. Yeah. Uh, I loved it when, because Alexis, supposedly the dumb one, was the one to get them out. I did one with um, some friends and their teenage son, and one of the clues involved uh, a phone, uh-huh. like a conventional phone. Oh. And, and, and Henry didn't, he, he just didn't handed it to, to us it. and said, I don't know what this is. <laughs> Isn't that wild? <laughs> Everything else, though, he was ahead of us. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> okay, Kyle, I, I heard this term so much more uh, in the last couple of weeks than I had ever heard it before. Do you know what a ghost gun is? It's like a gun, like a burner phone. It, it, it's a gun that's not traceable. I guess you filed off the serial number or something. Well, that and, and uh, yeah, it does lack a serial number. Um, and it's typically assembled by the user mm. from purchased or homemade components. Right. And the way that it was presented when I read it, it was kind of like, oh, well, this is a fun hobby. But mm. that's not the reason I think that most I, of them are used. Probably not. All right. Here's one that's vaguely related to your profession, Kyle. Mm-hmm. What's a hot take? It's the bane of my existence. <laughs> oh, uh, you know. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Um, a hot take is a very opinionated, quick, um, well, a very quick, very opinionated statement. And provocative, yeah. yeah provocative, yeah, yes. Yeah. And it's big in talk radio, sports talk mm-hmm. radio. And, pol- and and in talk in the talk radio world, be it sports or politics or whatever, it's thought that that's how you keep listeners, and yeah. and it just doesn't lend itself to any sort of nuanced conversation whatsoever. Kind of like the world we're living in well, today. Yes. <laughs> in fact, there is a radio station. I don't know if they still have this promo in our area, a sports station that said they have a promo that says, "Don't have a hot take. Don't bother calling." It's like I just oh, I hate that. Wow. I hate. And that. so it's that that commonly uh, oh, common known. Oh, in sports, uh-huh. it's oh, sports talk uh-huh. radio and sports talk television. Hot take is everybody knows what. And it's that a badge is. of honor. He has yeah, hot takes. Yeah. Uh, yeah. yeah it's uh, a shame. Mm. Well, the next ten-year word um, describes something that, frankly, I'm just tired of seeing. Mm-hmm. What's a reaction GIF? Oh, when. A reaction GIF is you've sent a text or a social post and it's an image of some fictional character making wide eyes or yeah. crying or something. And and some comment, lengths of comments, that's all they are. And yeah. I just, I, I'm tired <laughs> of it. Now, you didn't question the fact that I said GIF. Oh, I don't have a hard <laughs> opinion. I do not have a hot take on that. <laughs> well, I looked it up, and it is Jeff, according to its creator. So he ought to be the one to be sure. able to talk about it, sure. what it is. <clears throat> okay. Uh, finally, Kyle, I'm really surprised that this next one is 10 years old. It certainly has currency today. I haven't run into a requirement for one yet, but tell us, what is a vaccine passport? Well, it proves you've been vaccinated against, right now, COVID-19, but I guess 10 years ago, mm, MERS, maybe MERS or... H1N1, yeah. yeah. Avian flu, yeah, yeah right. Lots, lots of things. So I have. I have used my vaccine card. Well, and I guess I guess the vaccine card that we all that we all should have. Mm. Um, <laughs> I guess that would be called a vaccine passport. But somehow I thought that they were going to come up with something that I don't know what else they would come uh, up. I'm with. sure in some other countries there probably is something that more resembles a pass. Yeah, I mean pro- at least something that fits 
snugly and easily into a wallet. Right, of course, this is <laughs> just large enough right. that you have to fold it. Right. And I think that I, I guess the people who designed the program didn't anticipate right. the problems. Right. But because they did have to do it on the fly. Yeah, yeah, and it's it's a pretty pitiful official document. I mean, like you say, it's too big. It's easily replicated. Yeah. And, you know, it just, it ought to be laminated at the very least. I agree. I agree. <laughs> uh, New York State was the first to issue a COVID vaccine passport, which people can show to obtain entry to sporting venues, concert halls, and participating businesses, while the governor of Florida has banned them. Oh, yes, he has. So I guess New York came up with some kind of official thing that... I guess, well, I don't know. I don't, I, I don't know what they did. Well, it says it was the first to issue it, so... I think it's still the card, though. I think it's the card really? that you and I have, yeah. Huh. Weird. Okay, well, that's it for this year's 10-year word challenge. Uh, in another decade, we can look back on one of the 2022 words that I really like, Huga. H-Y-G-G-E. Oh, you're ahead of have me on this. Have no. you seen it? You haven't seen it? It's a cozy quality that makes a person feel content and comfortable. Well, here's to Hugie. Lots of Huga. Huga. Huga in the next decade. <laughs> Catherine Sherald is our militant grammarian. This is Ozarks at Large. It is time for the first time in 20... Well, that's not correct. Hang on. Sherry Otaviano, KUAF's membership director, is with me. I was about to say we're going to give away our first KUAF winner in 2022. That's not true because in January, we gave one away... For December. So technically, this is the first qualifying for the year. And the second time in the year that we, you and I have... Wow, that, I spent much more time on that than I needed to. <laughs> we do have a winner, someone who contributed to KUAF in January. Yeah, it's my honor and my privilege to say that Leah Carnes was randomly selected to receive a night out on KUAF because she was a, a, made a gift during the month of January, and we are sending her a gift certificate for Mockingbird Kitchen. Nice. And some passes to the Malco Theaters. All right. So uh, she'll get those in the mail. Yes. You want to hear your name called in March? What do you got to do? Give us some time during the month of February. <laughs> right. And you can do that at supportkuaf.com. Yes, or um, by sending something in to us here at the station. What's our address? It's 9 South School in Fayetteville, Arkansas. Sherry Otaviano, KUAF Membership Director, thank you very much. Thank you, Kyle. Listen up, teachers. The spring semester is back in session. And if your students have something to say, NPR wants to hear it. It's time again for the Student Podcast Challenge. Podcasts can be anything from a class project to students' perspectives on an event in the school or community. The contest is for middle and high school students, and it's open now through March 21st. All students need is the help of a teacher like you. For details, rules, and past contest winners, go to studentpodcastchallenge.npr.org. This is KUAF 91.3, Fayetteville, Fort Smith, Bentonville, and St. Paul. Today's show produced by Timothy Dennis. Contributors today included Jacqueline Froelich and Daniel Carruth, who provided reporting about educators wanting more transparency when it comes to COVID-19 protocols. Daniel's work produced inside the Karen Taha News Studio. Our thanks to Sherry Otaviano, our membership director at KUAF, for her participation today. Additional show creation today, courtesy of Rachel Sanchez-Smith. Additional material heard today provided by KUAR, Public Radio in Little Rock. I'm Kyle Kellums. Thanks for being with us.